You're listening to The Future of Food Is You, a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Abina Anamsamwa, and each week I talk to emerging talents in the food world, and they share what they're up to, as well as their dreams and predictions for what's ahead. As for me, I'm the founder of The Eden Place, a community that's all about gathering people intentionally around food. I love this new generation of chefs, bakers, and creatives making their way in the worlds of food, drink, media, and tech. Today's guest is Kristen Barnett. Kristen is the founder and CEO of Hungry House, a New York City-based startup that partners with digitally native chefs and food personalities to bring their culinary ideas to life. I'm excited to chat with Kristen about her transition from consulting to culinary, the creator economy, and the new model for ghost kitchens. Don't know what a ghost kitchen is? Stay tuned. The Cherry Bomb Podcast Network has another show I'd love to tell you about. It's called She's My Chariot Pie, and it's all about baking. Each Saturday, host Jesse Sheehan chats with world-class bakers and does a deep dive into their signature baked goods. If you love baking, this is definitely the show for you. It's also a relaxing listen and pairs perfectly with your morning coffee. I love this show, and I think you will too. You can catch Jesse in conversation with baking experts like pastry chef Claudia Fleming, sticky bun savant Joanne Chang, Macaron Queen Christina Ha, and more. Listen wherever you get your podcast. You can also find the transcripts on cherrybomb.com. One other thing, I would love a rating and a review for The Future of Food Is You. Tell me what you think so far since we're a new podcast, and let me know of any suggestions for future guests. I'd love to know your thoughts, and thank you in advance. Thank you to Kerrygold for supporting The Future of Food Is You. Kerrygold is the iconic Irish brand famous for its rich butter and cheese made in Ireland with milk from grass-fed cows. Let's talk butter first. There's a Kerrygold butter for all of you out there. From soft and spreadable butter in a tub to sticks of salted or unsalted, a perfect measurement option for foolproof cooking. There's a Kerrygold butter blended with olive oil, which is about to become your pantry essential. My go-to is a traditional block of Kerrygold unsalted butter foils, perfect for baking because of that higher butter fat content and because I can control the amount of salt in the specific recipe. Then there's Kerrygold cheese. The options go way beyond their classic Irish cheddar. There's Kerrygold Blarney cheese, which is a Gouda style, Kerrygold Dubliner, sweet and nutty with a bite similar to aged Parmesan, Kerrygold Skellig, a tangy take on cheddar, and the rich and delicious Kerrygold Cashel Blue Farmhouse Cheese. For the best cheese board, just accompany these with some grapes, your favorite crackers, and some funky jams for contrasting vibes. You're all set. If you haven't tried Kerrygold yet, don't delay. The future is now. Look for their butter and cheese at your favorite supermarket, specialty grocery store, or cheese shop. Visit KerrygoldUSA.com for recipes and product information. Now, let's check in with today's guest. Kristen, welcome to the Future Food Is You podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about your childhood and how food showed up in your life. Great place to start. My childhood was in a small town in Massachusetts. I grew up on like a nature reserve, so a network of like trails, wooded trails. I grew up playing with like salamanders and like nature girl, horse girl vibes. I don't often share that, but I was frolicking around and food, contrary to what my life looks like now in terms of living in New York City, obviously going out to restaurants and engaging with all the amazing cultural events of the city, then we barely went out ever 
it was always home cooking. My mm. mom making all these meals for me and my little sister. And so I really understood food as primarily like a from scratch endeavor. Every Saturday and Sunday, we'd have pancakes and waffles. And eventually, when I was 11 or 12, I started getting into baking. I just loved quick breads, banana breads, pumpkin breads, blueberry muffins, whatever. And that then began my journey, like cooking more savory food and sharing it with friends, getting people together. I didn't even really understand how big and vibrant the restaurant and hospitality industry was. Eventually, I went to college. I was like, why is there a hospitality school? Yeah, and (laughs) I mean, that's a perfect segue because you ended up going to like the hospitality school in the country at Cornell. I actually went to the agriculture school, which is where they have the business school. I now go back and lecture in the hospitality school. When I showed up, though, I was like, why does that school exist? Like, I had stayed in a couple motels, maybe a hotel, like, here and there. But travel and going out to eat at restaurants just really wasn't a part of my childhood. We were camping in the woods, going on hiking trips and, like, staying at huts. (laughs) You were doing nature's hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you ended up going to the agricultural school at Cornell University. Yep. But then you ended up discovering the hospitality industry there. So what was it like studying agriculture at Cornell? Yeah, so the business school originates in the agriculture school because originally that was the economy of the United States, right? This was the backbone of how business was done when we were a agriculture-based economy. It was awesome because I was able to take traditional business classes, but then also go into food policy and understand farming and understand development internationally and how crops played a role in that in these smaller communities. And so it was this balance where I started to actually go deeper from an intellectual perspective on food. And so I would take classes at the hotel school when I could. I had this amazing senior year project where I did a whole paper just on the growing cider industry like hard cider was starting to take off then perfect for that part of the country too yeah yeah i was really fortunate to get that like traditional business education but then because of the breadth of the program at the school like go really deep into food in addition to that yeah what were some of the classes you took at the hotel school i'm always so intrigued it was about future trends in food and beverage. But my actual favorite class was in the agriculture school, and it was about grocery stores. <laughs> I love grocery stores. What do you learn? Do you, like, oh have to God. go to a grocery store for class? You're just like... I wish I would have. Yeah. No, but it was run by this amazing guy, Rod. And basically, he'd bring in executives from Kroger, Costco, and they would talk about trends they were seeing in consumer behavior My favorite parts were learning about the growth in white label products, like Trader Joe's model. Costco even. Yeah. Yeah. And then Costco building these huge brands and sourcing almonds from Africa and like what that meant to their supply chains and the goals there. It was a big change then because white label products by grocery stores originally had always been seen as these like off-label things and and then Wegmans started doing it Trader Joe's and and now it's like normal completely normal to buy a grocery store branded bag of something right it was cool like you know probably studying that about 10 years ago and seeing it really come to fruition that's amazing I'm sure he wasn't like meet me in aisle seven for class that's like what I was thinking (laughs) I think I did go to an Aldi in Ithaca New York though I don't know if you've ever been to an Aldi I've been to Aldi and to Ithaca 
at the grocery store, it's like we were studying aisle design because you mm-hmm. can only go one way through it. Yeah. Anyways, fascinating. I, one of my favorite books that I've read is The Secret Life of Groceries ah. by Benjamin Moore, I believe. I would love it, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, oh, you would. <laughs> it, that book, I've always loved grocery stores. I'm the person on vacation Same. who's oh. like, Museum, grocery (laughs) store, restaurant. And it just, it's so fascinating how much they've shaped food culture and all that. But before you get into food, I feel like many people on the podcast, you had another life in consulting. Yes. Did any of the things that you learned in consulting help spur the motivation to get out of there and and start (laughs) doubling down in food? Yeah, I mean, really what consulting did for me was, and I will acknowledge it was an amazing place to start my career, of course. Like I learned incredibly structured thinking, like deep analytical skills, and all of that ended up really aiding me later on. But it, for me, pushed me physically in a way that I couldn't actually handle. Like The reason I work in the food industry is because I have chronic Lyme disease, actually. Mm. And so I got diagnosed very late while I was in college. Much of my college years were spent on multiple rounds of antibiotics, combining antibiotics and antimalarials, just trying to feel better. And I really struggled. I was somewhat better. And I started my job at the Boston Consulting Group here in New York with all the travel and the stress of being a first-year associate. It's a pretty intense role. (laughs) I ended up relapsing really bad. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. It was shocking just how quickly it was happening. I couldn't stay awake more than like 45 minutes at a point. I couldn't walk more than a block without just excruciating pain. And I had done years of antibiotics at that point. And I was like, okay, there's got to be a different way. This is insane. The side effects are terrible. I keep getting sick anyways. And so I, quite honestly, very desperate, turned to dietary change. I ended up going to this alternative, very alternative program predominantly for chronically ill cancer patients, but they were experimenting with the effects on Lyme. And it was a raw vegan program for 20 days. Wow. Truly raw vegan. So like no sugar, no fruit even. Nothing Um, processed. Nothing processed. Like dessert was eating a raw piece of corn on the cob. Like it was... (laughs) Is that good for your body? At that point, yes. Like I I was like, this is dessert. Wow. But it didn't matter because I was, like, desperate. It was truly food as a medical intervention, not just, like, food as wellness. And it was fascinating. And in 20 days, I was able to walk without pain. Miracle. That's incredible. After that, you then end up going to work at Dave. Yeah. I was like, wait, I got to go see what this is all about. Yeah. No, it was more like I felt like I had found my passion. Like, it was the sign. You can dedicate your brain to, like, solving these problems, and you're probably going to actually enjoy it and be happier and healthier if you follow this passion. And so I decided at that moment I wanted to understand how to do good food at scale. What does that look like? That's what took me to dig. Yeah. And yeah. so you were at dig while it was still digging. Yes. Yes. <laughs> still uh, at the end. <laughs> yeah. And now it's just dig. Yeah. And you were the director of strategic operations. Yes. What does that mean? <laughs> it's a really great catch-all phrase used in a startup when a lot's going on and a lot of problems to fix. I came in at a really fortunate time, I felt, where I saw the company triple in size over the three and a half years I was there. And I did everything from running the whole supply chain with only four months experience, then ultimately supporting the entire menu development process with the chief culinary officer. So having a yin-yang relationship where I could be the project manager for all of those different initiatives we had going on. 
and then ultimately was overseeing the ghost kitchen and food delivery business, which was exploding at the time. This is like 2018, 2019. And I started to see just how important the shift that technology was having for all of us, like how big that impact was for consumers and that's, our business. That's incredible. So that was the impetus for you deciding to work in ghost kitchens. Can you tell our audience what a ghost kitchen is? <laughs> sure. So a ghost kitchen is typically known for being a restaurant that you can order from. I'm doing like air quotes, restaurant that you can order from that doesn't have a storefront. So you can access it online for delivery on the apps usually, and you can have the food delivered to your home, but you might not be able to go visit it or actually go and eat in at that location. What sparked the inception for Ghost Kitchens in the restaurant world? Well, I think that a lot of it was consumers discovering the power of food delivery and the convenience of it. Originally, for me, food delivery as a consultant and an intern in finance and all that, it was like the late night bites you'd get at the office, and that's the only real time you did it. And consumers themselves, just restaurants, the good restaurants, like maybe weren't available, not everyone was doing it. There weren't courier networks. Like you have to think 10 years ago, DoorDash barely existed maybe. There was incredible product market fit for consumers who wanted this type of convenience. And in the beginning, obviously, investors saw this rapid fire growth that was primarily like led by DoorDash, but also then Uber Eats. They were able to put so much cash into these companies that consumers also didn't have to pay fees. So it kind of was the same price. And you're yes. like, whoa, this is so convenient. Not that expensive. It really just caught on like absolute wildfire. For restaurants, what this is like a roundabout answer to like ghost kitchens and how we arrived there. But restaurants then suddenly had so much delivery demand and it was incongruent with their existing operating model. So what you had was couriers like battling the lines of customers at lunch to pick up food and customers being like, oh, my God, this is like terrible and it's crowded and and the tickets not being like managed correctly on all the different sales channels. They were trying to make all this food off the same lines. It was very chaotic. And so a lot of restaurants who saw success with their food selling on delivery were like, what if I put all this demand into a dedicated kitchen that can actually support this operating model, like this business model selling food online? And that's where a lot of the ghost kitchens started to mm. proliferate was actually a solution to offloading excess demand and making sure that from an operational perspective, you kept your business highly organized to meet the various needs of your different customer bases. Yeah. You know, you talk a little bit about supply chains. How did working in supply chains help inform how you want to decide working on ghost kitchens? For me, it's been this journey of answering that question of like how to make really good food at scale. Where you start is at the farm, right? And at Dig, when we were designing our culinary programs six, nine months in advance, it was like, wow, all right, we want to grow broccoli and have broccoli three ways where it was using the floret, the stem and the stalk. And we would go and walk the fields with the farmer and actually say, we want X amount of inches of the stalk packed in these boxes and designing dishes from there. But then as I got further in the journey at Dig, I realized, well, actually, good food at scale is about how you communicate it and get it to customers. It became this journey like outwards. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the delivery mechanisms by which we receive our food are part of the supply chain. It's part of this whole 
chain of events. And so I went from the earliest, like, how do you actually grow crops and then translate that into a dish to everything I feel like, you know, I've been working on now the last three years, which has been what's the branding, the communication, the ordering mechanisms, the delivery mechanisms, and all the pieces that need to, one, convince a customer it's worth to order, that they believe in the quality of the food, but then also how it's going to actually get to them. And what's the state of supply chains, particularly for food in America? I know we're seeing so much news about things being expensive on all corners of the country. Yeah, I mean, we noticed this Certainly over the three and a half years I was there where we started to build in more volatility into our financial models for how we thought about price fluctuations due to, wow, like the avocado season ended early or the cauliflower is coming up late for X, Y, and Z reasons. You have to bridge those gaps and you don't access your like lower contracted pricing for a certain amount of time. We saw financially those impacts starting to hit. It's like that, but like tenfold over the last (laughs) three years now in a post-pandemic world where the supply chains broke down for any number of reasons, whether it was related to the actual transportation of the crops, obviously ongoing climate change related issues, but even just like the impact of labor, too, and seeing that, wow, when factories in China get shut down for two months because of a lockdown policy, that backs up the entire paper goods supply chain. And you feel those effects like six to eight months later. It's really changed how you think about purchasing. It's like bad practice, but like you can see why people stockpile ingredients now when you have them in stock because they might not be in stock in the future. And so it's created a lot of topsy-turviness in terms of purchasing behavior and a lot of hedging against the risk of the disruptions that now are so multidimensional. Are there industry standards to make supply chains more sustainable? I know we talk about farmers markets. What I've always been impressed with by DIG is their commitment to really partnering with farms to build those relationships, but educate, you know, consumers of like your sweet potato is coming from here or your corn is coming from here or the chicken in your bowl is coming from here. So it's hard to say industry standards in any way, especially referring to restaurants, because It's very dependent on what you stand for as a company and like what your goals are, what your brand is for customers. And I wish there were industry standards when it came to sustainable sourcing and partnerships with farms, but it's just not every owner's interest, which I think is a real shame and it should change. It is often the harder path to take. For DIG, it required significant investment. I mean, we had an entire distribution facility in Hunts Point in the Bronx where we pre-processed and prepped a lot of the ingredients so that, one, it was easier for farms to land it in one place instead of delivering to our 22 restaurants in the city. And then also it enabled our restaurant locations to actually hold more product because it was already partially broken down. That was just a massive undertaking to do it. But what I realized more than anything that I feel always was acknowledged more was that when it comes to supply chain sustainability and really working towards a future where you are better connecting maybe local farms with the actual end product, all of this comes down to purchasing power. It's your budget. It's the dollars. So whoever's in charge of that for a given restaurant chain, that's a really important role. And it really needs to be a thoughtful leader that is thinking strategically about the future. And I know that I felt the responsibility of our budget when we looked at where are we going to allocate this spend? Because ultimately, whenever we picked a farm to work with, they were like, thank you for this contract. 
I now understand that I have this much less risk in my business this year. And so it was a real honor and responsibility to make those decisions. And I think I just gained a lot of perspective in terms of how you actually move the needle. And that's like, yeah, we have X millions of dollars. Where are we going to spend it? That is important. That is really important. Yeah, because it's not just also where that money is going, but how does that money affect the brand, affect relationships, affect the whole ecosystem? So yeah, And you're like outsourcing sustainability to like the hundreds of thousands of customers we had. Yeah. That's the thing is they are purchasing then that food, but we're ensuring that purchase, at least that one in their day, is going and supporting these farms who are doing great regenerative farming practices or they're diverse farmers and we're helping create a more just and equitable farming system. Absolutely. I want to talk to you about technology's impact on sustainability and hospitality. How do you think ghost kitchens are impacting consumer hospitality as we speak? Oh, my. Well, I think it's both been good and bad because... The systems were not built to handle these like tech enabled restaurant brands and ghost kitchens without a storefront. Right. I remember back in 2019, there was actually a hearing on ghost kitchens in New York City that the founders of the company I was working for at the time, Zool, they were there as well as a couple of reporters. Oh, wow. And it was looking at some really interesting dynamics that had popped up, which was all right, you're cooking out of this like unlabeled kitchen, essentially (laughs) anywhere, right? No storefront, whatever. You could be cooking under 10, 15 different brands. But when consumers go and look up on the DOH website, what's the health score? None of those brands will exist. There was a lack of transparency and also a lack of understanding by our city government on like how to actually really regulate and create awareness of what these new business models are. In terms of how they've shifted maybe sustainability or not, I mean, I think initially it was not a great thing because there wasn't transparency. And so in terms of being able to hold brands to standards or really understand what's going in the food and where it's coming from, some very basic questions like couldn't be answered about a lot of the brands that were popping up in those early years. Now I think brands are better built out, but even so... It's much more of like a marketing play than something that's based on necessarily the quality of the food. And I think that's been a shortcoming in the ghost kitchen industry that I personally reacted very strongly to and thought needed to change. Yeah. And again, (laughs) another perfect transition because you've dubbed Hungry House as the anti-ghost ghost ghost kitchen because (laughs) because you have decided to partner with creators and basically have added a face to the ghost kitchen. So. I'm curious, after you worked at Zool, what was the inspiration for going out on your own and starting Hungry House? Yeah, so after Dig, I, I joined Zool, which had just opened a ghost kitchen in the city. Soon after that, we acquired a tech company and started building out our own ghost kitchen technology platform, which was like back of house fulfillment and then a curated white label ordering platform for offices to basically access the selection from our ghost kitchen. I essentially joined this company four months later, the pandemic hits, and it was like, whoa, like, (laughs) all right, everyone's talking about ghost kitchens. How can we help? How can we play a role in this? And I just had this incredible front row seat to practically every single ghost kitchen project that was coming up in those early years. Understanding that there was 
I felt like always creativity being left on the table. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw DJ Khaled launches another wings and Mariah Carey has cookies and Mr. Beast Burger obviously is the That's biggest like ghost the kitchen brand. Ghost kitchen, yeah. I really saw the power of existing in this digital only world and leveraging these built in audiences that these people had to sell food digitally. For me, it felt, wow, that's a really obvious thing to do because they're going to primarily promote it through social media. And then you click and you're like suddenly on DoorDash ordering that burger. Mm -hmm. All of the actual food was very simplistic, usually commoditized frozen chicken wings like dropped in a fryer or burgers and they're being licensed to all these restaurants across the country so you don't really know who's cooking it the quality of the beef doesn't matter where the chicken wings are coming from who knows they're frozen whatever i thought wow this is so inspiring from a marketing perspective but it's built on kind of a low quality or like a quick and easy approach like they had certain operational constraints that made it so that, yes, that's how they need to cook their burgers. That's how you need to do those chicken wings. And I started to get approached by more and more of my friends who were culinary creators, who were chefs, who had cookbooks, or maybe a restaurant and then maybe not, or just pure play influencers. And they were like, hey, kind of feel like I should work with a ghost kitchen. I'm going to be on this TV show next month. And I don't have a restaurant to market, but what if I could still sell my food? What's my product? And kept getting this inquiry. And so I was like, huh, who could they work with? And I didn't really have a good answer. None of the ghost kitchens for me at the time felt like something I would peg my personal brand to. And I felt like none of them were actually targeting culinarians, like chefs who care about quality and transparency. When you work in food, you're doing it out of passion, out of telling a story Ghost kitchens at that time, this is 2020, 2021, it felt honestly like a lot of tech bro nonsense. <laughs> I mean, that's how some of this stuff starts, right? Yeah. No, but and like, there's you no know, heart. there's no heart in it. Yeah, I was yeah. like, where's the soul? Where's the story? Like, exactly. I love the tech. I think it's fascinating. I'm working in this space, but you can't just like algorithm optimize everything. Especially food. Especially food. Mm-hmm. And so... I was like, man, someone's going to start this, right? And then no one was starting it. So I was like, well. (laughs) Looking around in the room, you're the only one. I guess I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. And and Zul, we got acquired by Kitchen United, a larger ghost kitchen player. And so it was a really perfect jumping off point for me to imagine. Finally starting my own company, which I had always known I wanted to do. Yeah. For me, it felt like a real gap to come in and fill. I love Hungry House, not only because... You're giving creators a chance to showcase themselves, but also the food that you have. I've been so lucky to try some of the stuff by Woldy Casina, who's one of the chefs there, and Chile Con Miel, who's another great chef there. And it's been amazing. It's like (laughs) something that you'd get at a sweet green or a cava, but it's nice to know that, oh, wow, this creator that I've been following for so long, this is their personality and their food. I'm curious to hear why it was important for you to create a healthy ghost kitchen. Well, it's not exclusively healthy. We do have burgers. I think that it's important to have a whole range of offering here. Or health forward. Yeah, health forward or even just higher in quality. I'm proud of our burgers and the sourcing of the ingredients and every component of that for that brand. And I wanted range. We have this amazing breadth on the menu. The thought behind that was... 
I felt like there were so many food stories to tell online, so many incredible voices that are leading the charge on social media and shifting the way that we think about food and culture. And these stories could benefit from having a platform to actually share that food in a physical way with people. Ultimately, being culinary voices, it's about the food. We really initially took steps to find creators who first really identified with a lot of our values and understood what we were trying to do. We are doing something completely new, (laughs) completely new. But what we care about is quality and the supply chain and diversity of voices and then ultimately the transparency so that we all can acknowledge that we're building this together. And we've been really fortunate to find some incredible people to partner with on this mission. And in honoring each of their voices, we've been able to make a ghost kitchen that, one, is much higher quality in terms of the food. I think that's important just because they are culinary voices, right? And this is what I want to eat. Great. And then obviously the people themselves anchoring the brands gives food meaning. And without that, like we'd all be chugging Soylent and... That's not good. Not (laughs) Not in this house. Yeah, not in this house. That's right. I'm so fascinated by the creator model. I'm curious to hear, how do you decide on the creators that you want to be partnered with? Yeah, so we've been really fortunate in that all of our creators thus far have been referrals or inbound. So we already know to a certain extent they've like self-selected for really identifying with the things that drive our company forward as Hungry House. We typically are looking for creators that are up and coming and known in New York. So we really feel like food is a local game. You have to plug into your community and resonate in that way. And so working with chefs who have done pop-ups before in New York or have a broader presence here uh, has been really important. We've done a range in terms of follower accounts that's like actually not that important to us because more than anything, it's about the concept and the person. And so we've allowed ourselves to not be so formulaic about that. And then finally, it's are they a great person? Like we're going into business together. Yeah. Inevitably, I always say something will go wrong. I want to know that you and I can look at each other in the eyes and say, I believe you did your best and we're going to fix this. And that is a level of trust that I think has to underpin every relationship. And we look to establish that really early on and understand that we're here. We invest a lot in each brand. I'm dedicating R&D from like my culinary team. We're training our staff in the kitchens. They're getting really hyped. We're obviously dedicating a lot of marketing to telling their story as well. And so we look for an even exchange and the understanding that we both together are going to uplift this narrative. And it's a very collaborative effort. That's so beautiful. I'm really curious to hear, how do you scale a creator's concept? Because again, a lot of these creators, are their offerings are incredibly visual. Yeah. It's what we're seeing on Instagram. There's a little bit of embellishment. There's a little bit of editing involved for color brightness or for whatever the recipe is meant to be. So how have you supported creators the translation yeah and and getting you know what looks like something on screen to something that is being able to produce 70 80 90 (laughs) times over in a day yeah so that process is really important obviously as you can imagine but it's actually better and easier than if I were trying to replicate a restaurant into a ghost kitchen setting so let me tell you 
what I saw a lot in the ghost kitchen space 2020, 2021 was all these restaurant brands being like, wow, I could license my brand into a ghost kitchen operator in this market and test it out. But the problem is that as a restaurant, you have pretty formulaic IP, right? We're in the game of IP, intellectual property, really acknowledging chef is artist and they are like creating this and it's special and you need to honor it. When you're copying a restaurant, it's pretty set in stone. And so you actually have more room for error in the eyes of the consumer because they've already experienced perhaps in an in-person setting, in a dining room with the server and the menu and Then they get something from a ghost kitchen. They're like, wait, this doesn't match up. And so you're much more susceptible to issues. So what we identified was actually like working with creators with more malleable IP. You are actually better positioned for success in the execution of that concept in our format because consumers don't really have a preconceived notion of what it's going to look like when it shows up for delivery. They're like just excited to finally be able to access it. We'll take inspirational elements from pop-ups the chef's done before or recipes that are on their blog or posted on other websites. But ultimately, it's going to look different. And we actually like that a lot because it might have been served family style, but we're trying to make food accessibly priced for the everyday consumer. And so we always ask, what if that was translated into a cafe? What if you had a cute little cafe and you had 100 of them? What would the food be there? We imagine for them, too, our prompt is, you're a celebrity chef. You now have 100 cafes. What's that cute little menu going to be? Knowing that you're still going to go crazy at your pop-ups and it's going to be all these incredibly bright, vivacious images and plating that's nuts. And that's what it should be and because that's a really important part of your brand. But this is also one expression of the brand just through a very specific channel. Yeah, that's so exciting. And... I'm curious how your creators or the creators you've partnered with have thought about the partnerships model that you've set up. So we enter into a royalty structure. And so essentially when we win, they win. I always look for this in business. Like how can we align incentives here? So it's quite simple. The more items they sell, the more that they get paid out on a given month. The structure themselves, like this is oftentimes the first time they might be entering into something like this. So we really work to make sure that the contract feels fair. Both of us, if it's like going wrong, can get out of it at any time. We don't want to force anyone to work with us. We really want this partnership to work. And so we structure it that way. Yeah. That's so exciting. And you mentioned that a lot of your creators have been inbound or referrals. Are there any creators that are out there on the scene right now that you would love to do a partnership with for Hungry House? Yeah. I mean, I would love to work with Dan Pelosi from Grossy Pelosi. I adore Oh him. my God. Yeah. I just already can see that menu. It'd be so fun. Or even uh, like a Sophia Rowe. I mean, her food for me is, I don't even know how we would translate it. It's so beautiful and I just love the way that she like makes the videos yeah. in an apartment me so I'm I'm obsessed well we're manifesting that <laughs> yes but I want to talk to you as well because you're also a female founder who also raised venture capital which is yeah. super interesting I feel like the food world is one because of the high margins and because of the dynamics it's often one where it's really hard for venture capital to even consider investing or even for food entrepreneurs to find that footing. So how is navigating the fundraising and development phase of getting Hungry House out in the world? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, it's difficult. <laughs> Anyone who tells you otherwise will be lying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in general, it's been a journey, but when you find people who believe in you and the brand and what you're building and that vision, it's absolutely incredible. It's hard. Like the numbers are stacked against you and that's real. You just start to feel it. Especially when you look at figures that are so disheartening where venture capital investment and female founding teams went down from 2.4% to 1.9%. This happens when there's economic instability because you go back to what you know. That's not even talking about like the conversations I'm having with people about work for DEI on boards and getting women on boards and making sure that corporate leadership is diverse. It is all getting thrown out the window, unfortunately, in these times, because everyone's like, I just got to make my money. And unfortunately, that doesn't allow you to, in their mind, take a riskier bet. This is obviously not explicit. This is all also subconscious. And so the process of raising capital as a female founder, you're often wondering, what could I have said differently? Because you're going to get perfectly constructed, thoughtful feedback on why they didn't invest in you. But then at the same time, you're going to probably go and see a peer's company who it might be male founded and they did raise three X as you. And you wonder, what did they say in that room? Yeah. Or did they go out to lunch? You just don't know. Was it a casual conversation? Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. it's hard because you're never going to have the counter narrative. Like you don't know, actually. And so all you can do is keep going. It is harder to build successful companies when you do just actually have less capital. The model itself for VC, I mean, these are 1,000x bets they want to take, 100x, you know, whatever. They want a huge return. It's also a very specific type of capital that can oftentimes clash with the model of the food industry where to grow and scale these businesses thoughtfully, it requires a more intentional roadmap of growth because ultimately this is a very fickle product, right? oftentimes also really impacted by the people on your team that are involved in the production of it. And so that requires a certain degree of intentionality that also sometimes that VC model can be difficult to ensure a good match. Yeah. It's like it's great in the the short term to get you the funding, but in the long term, it's always hard to be able to play that catch up. But I'm really curious when you think about the food community and especially the female founder food community, how have you found community and support as you've been navigating building this? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's like my favorite thing ever to hang out with other female founders. Oh, it is such a blessing to have community on this journey where you can say the things that you're like, oh, my God, I'm so miserable sometimes. You just need to say those words and then suddenly it it's less scary. Yeah. It's primarily been reaching out to others who I just think have really cool businesses and being like, hey, we should finally get coffee. Like, I've heard your name a hundred times. Like, I admire you so much. Or something that's a lot harder, which is asking for help. I have learned that lesson a thousand times over in this journey, just how valuable it is to ask for help. And it's something that, for me, has not been easy. If you're in the type A grind and you're like, the hustle. Yeah. You're not trained to show weakness or even understand that vulnerability can actually be a strength. And I found even just in the most recent months, really asking for help in the way that I have has completely turned my expectations of what I can get from a community-based support 
it's turned it on its head because I realized that being vulnerable and asking for help actually just has made me more confident in myself because I've had more people to validate that I am okay, like that I'm doing a good job. And as a solo founder, too, or female founder, you just never hear those words. And it's sometimes just like all you need to hear is like someone saying, you are trying your best. You're doing okay. Yeah. You're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> yeah. You host these semi-regular dinners with other female founders. Yeah. How have you found that support? Like, how have you found creating that initiative has helped support or helped at least change the industry for those other founders that are coming in? Oh, my gosh. What's actually kind of cool about it over the years, because I've had years where I've done it more and then being a Life founder happens. has been whew, a little yeah. more difficult, but I've worked with other founders through it to co-host and hosted for a few years with Edie Feinstein of, of Gem, which is an incredible company, and then Daniel Gould of Food Tech Connect. And what's been so cool is that the people who come to them eventually go on to be founders themselves, which is like me. Then you have these friends who are there who are already founders, and you can call on them as you navigate the journey. And so it's actually been cool because... I always thought about these dinners when I would host them as having like the backroom conversations that a lot of men are having. But because we are a rarer breed, like we just have less access, one, to those spaces, but also containers that are just female founders. You finally have a space to talk about business. And that's the prompt in the context. We're all here doing something meaningful. Let's talk about uh, your equity package. Let's talk about navigating something with a board member. Let's talk about these things in a more casual setting over a glass of nice natural wine. You can really gain a lot of context and perspective. And I've always thought that my journey as a woman in the business world, it's always been an informational disadvantage. And so I constantly seek out ways to create more context, get more information, ask more questions, to educate myself. And that has usually been the catalyst of taking the next big step in my yeah, career. That's really refreshing. How do you hope to see Hungry House and its unique model transform the food industry and then also transform how we come to view ghost kitchens? Because I feel like the sentiments right now, I think because... <laughs> it's iffy, let yeah, me tell you. <laughs> and I think it's because of the food that they're serving. Of it's course. Because if you're just serving burgers and fries, but the only thing you're really making unique is who's selling it, then yep. people don't feel as connected to it. Whereas I feel like the model that you've created has a lot of what to gain a closer connection to someone that they normally wouldn't traditionally be able to see in a restaurant or anything. Yeah. So starting with the first part of that in terms of the food industry, I think that we are in the midst of a huge shift where... Culinary voices that traditionally would have been anchored by a restaurant are now like <laughs> loading out in the world, building these crazy omni-channel careers that are so diverse in terms of the types of projects you can take on and yet still largely unrecognized by the traditional food industry. I think that divide is starting to get bridged a little bit, but I believe that honoring the voices of this next generation that are using social media in this way is a valid and important endeavor. And more systems need to be created to support these voices that also, let's be real, are more diverse than the past because mm -hmm. they are no longer getting forced to come up through these like French-trained, white-male-run kitchens that 
historically have been incredibly toxic and disenfranchising environments for the younger workers that come up through them. As we engage in this shift, I hope that Hungry House is lending culinary credibility to this next generation, saying these voices matter. We need to support them. We need to honor their stories. And let's go deeper in understanding why they are telling the stories that they are and what it can mean for our collective food future. We're getting to learn about so many different types of cuisine, how it's passed down through generations. I'm just obsessed with it all, you know, and like I feel so fortunate and so lucky to be in a position where I can help push those stories out there further. So I hope that we're a part of that shift towards a more diverse array of voices in the room that maybe came from restaurants or didn't regardless, are valid and important. In terms of how we can change the ghost kitchen industry, I mean, I launched hot out of the gate calling myself the anti-ghost kitchen. And it really, for me, was like a call to action saying, hey, industry, like, I love you. I am you. Like, I am a ghost kitchen. And yet, I think we can do better by consumers to really focus on quality and the stories that underpin the food we're putting out. I think that ultimately... You need to anchor any food item out there by a reason to believe. And I felt that was missing. I didn't really believe in any of the food that my industry peers were pushing out there. And and I know that we have been referenced as a model. We're really the first ghost kitchen company that has a consumer brand as Hungry House. Consumers yeah. know it. They can walk up and pick up the food. I wouldn't do that for any of the other ghost kitchen companies out there because their brands don't mean anything to me. They don't have a unifying approach to why that food exists within their like premises. And I hope that we can continue to stand for something in a way that proves to others it is possible to be playing in a completely tech-driven environment but still find soul <laughs> and also create products of quality. What's the future of Hungry House? You're two years in. You've built such great partnerships. You're allowing these creators to have a tangible means of expressing themselves. Where do you see Hungry House in the next five to seven years? Yeah, so, I mean, in its most simplistic form, it's more creators, more talent, and more locations, too. You know, talking to our talent, there is just a lot of opportunity to have a Hungry House model in other cities that maybe their audience is. So it's all that like New York, L.A., Miami type of thing. But, you know, continuing to place ourselves at the center of food and culture, leveraging technology to make it all go further and come together in a really cohesive way is the plan. I think that happens through increasing our distribution, through continuing to work with incredible talent, and then hopefully helping them even go further. We're helping test sauces that could be bottled and distributed. Ooh, very and cool. We just want to go as far as we can to be a creator-centric company. And what that might mean is all these different opportunities for them to expand their brand. And so I hope to see us doing that in the future and really making an impact as the world continues to shift to creator-led brands and creator-led movements, I feel. Yeah, that's so exciting. Well, Kristen, we're about to do our fun Future Food Is You tradition. We call it the Future <laughs> Flash Five. Let's do it, Kristen. The future of plant-based eating. Real ingredients. The future for female founders. Community. The future of social media. 
authenticity. The future of grocery stores. Storytelling. And lastly, the future of ghost kitchens. Transparency. Amazing. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us on the show. If we want to hear more about you and continue to support you and Hungry House, where are the best places to find you? You can always connect with me on LinkedIn. I love, you know, sharing what we're up to there. And then Hungry House is on Instagram at orderhungryhouse or orderhungryhouse.com. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you. Before we go, our guest is going to leave a voicemail at the Future of Food mailbox, just talking to themselves 10 years from now. You have reached the Future of Food is You mailbox. Please leave your message after the beep. Hey, Kristen. It feels big and scary right now being a founder, a solo founder at that, and a woman on top of that, too, among these uncertain economic times and all the instability that comes with having a startup. I am telling myself, I guess, now that it's all going to work out. And I hope that you, 10 years from now, are chuckling to yourself saying that, yeah, of course it did. I hope that you were able, though, to find joy, to connect your work back to your soul's calling and find a way to use your voice to its fullest extent. I'm sure you'll look back on all of this and realize it was the challenges that made the next decade so rich. I hope this is true. And I'm taking a step forward each day to make it happen, no matter how hard it is. I hope that you have a fridge full of pickled goodies, maybe a garden, and a rich community of friends who inspire and support you. I hope that you continue to find your unique angle in the food world and build things that matter to you, but also, so importantly, to others. I hope that you continue to learn how to slow down, to savor the good moments. And quite honestly, I hope you got tons of travel in after a very bleak period of those pandemic years. And I guess finally, I just hope that you found joy, that you always made magic, and that you soaked up every second of this journey. That's it for today's show. Do you know someone who you think is the future of food? Tell us about them. Nominate them at the link in our show notes, or leave us a rating and a review, and tell me about them in the review. I can't wait to read more about them. Thanks to Carrie Gold for sponsoring the show. Visit CarrieGoldUSA.com for more. The Future of Food is You is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Thanks to the team at CityVox Studios, executive producers Carrie Diamond and Katherine Baker, and associate producer Jenna Sadu. Catch you on the future flip! <laughs> <laughs>